0: Hello, Tom.
1: Hello, Stuart. How are you? I'm very good. I was just wondering uh, how good a liar you are. I'm rubbish, Stuart. I'm rubbish. I, I... 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 I just don't like doing it. When I come back, you know, from a night out, and say, "Oh, I only had one drink, darling," and then I, then I, uh, when I came straight home. Was like, no, it's a lie. It's a lie. I had two drinks. I had two drinks. I can't, you can't hold it, in. it builds no, up. No, I can't. You can't. Yeah, exactly. I just feel guilty can't. and bad, and I so I ended up. Yeah, I'm rubbish at it. Obviously, yeah. I don't admit to all the murders I've done, but they. Um, <laughs> yeah, but this is what
0: a liar would say. Yeah, uh, no, it's true. Uh, that, um, that they're in, in fact uh, really, really good, at, really good at telling the truth. I'm. I'm. Uh, I think I'm. If anything, a bit too honest with people. I'll tell them things that they don't really yes. want to hear. Like but when then, I ask
1: you, does my bum look big in this? And you <laughs> go, oh, well, <laughs>
0: You don't hear that so much anymore. No, it's true. Uh, <laughs> That's as a, it's as a thing. thing. Um, anyway, the point is, today we're talking about people who are very good at lying, or some people who lied at one point and seemed to get away with it, but then, uh, then didn't. Uh, yes. Today we're talking about scientific fraud. Yes. Um, uh, so welcome to The Study Show. My name's Stuart Ritchie. I'm a science writer at The i.
1: And I'm Tom Chivers. I'm a science writer at Semaphore.
0: Yeah. And um, scientific fraud has been in the news recently because, uh, well, it's kind of always in the news. There's kind of a, a constant background radiation of studies that just tick along that have been retracted from the scientific literature due to fraud. But there's been a big study recently that's been, uh, or a big story recently, I should say, mm-hmm. um, about uh, um, Harvard Business School. So you wouldn't necessarily think that. Top universities uh, would have academics that are accused of fraud, um, but in fact, uh, in fact, they are, including Harvard. Um, mm. Have you seen this story? Uh, I absolutely have.
1: Know? Yes, there was this, a blog called Data Collada run by some people. I think we've certainly met, mentioned before these these, um, these sort of data detectives in science who say yeah.
0: who are all, uh, by the way, like psychology professors.
1: Yes, and and very statistically minded ones yeah. who, who who went through the data and sort of looked in in various studies and sort of found what looked like evidence of numbers that couldn't be right. If something I they yeah. couldn't they couldn't yeah. could not have entered a bit, bit of the, uh, if in, if they were normally collected they could not have looked the way they look. Now I suppose I should say up right up here at the top that it's pretty clear that the data in the work has. Gone wrong somehow, you know that there's, right. there has been has been made up or falsified, falsified in some yeah, way, yeah. but it's while we know the authors of those studies we don't know we don't, you know, it's not, it's not clear who, that we know who did the, who, who did this falsification. I think that's... <laughs>
0: Please don't sue us, is yes. what Tom Yeah, saying. yeah, that is... Please a, don't yeah. sue us. Uh, yeah. And we'll, we'll come, we'll come to that suing issue. Mm. Um, yeah, so the people in question here, so the Harvard Business School academic is uh, Francesca Gino, who is a very high-powered professor, uh, or was, because she's mm. now been put on uh, leave um, from, from, from Harvard, and they're about to try and rescind her tenure. Um, and... She had a famous paper that she co-authored with another very well-known uh, psychologist, Dan Ariely, who is at Duke University, which is another, obviously, another top university in uh, the US. Um, and uh, I mean, I had heard of this paper years before it became, you know, under scrutiny. Uh, this this very famous paper on whether you should sign, whether people should sign at the top or the bottom of like a, a tax form or insurance form or something like that, because. Um, If you sign at the top, it sort of activates your moral, whatever, the moral part of your mind, and then you're more honest. Um, And so immediately you realise that this is a a, a paper that's about honesty, about how to stop people becoming dishonest, and that paper has been accused of uh, containing fraudulent data, which is very ironic.
1: Well, yeah, you could, exactly. I was just thinking you can imagine this great big neon sign flashing dramatic irony over yes. it. You know <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: And um, this is a this is a big deal paper. I mean, it was it was every, it was it was everywhere. Uh, you know, covered in lots of books. Um, Barack Obama mentioned it at one point um, in one of his kind of White House documents. You know, this was this was a this was a big thing. And and you know, both Gino and Ariely are very important professors. So we're not talking about some random academics here. They're very important. So like uh, Gino, uh, there's there's a big long um, New Yorker article uh, about them, which is which we'll put in the show notes, which is really well worth reading. But Gino uh, says um, she was a research consultant for Disney uh, and a speaker's bureau, quoted clients between 50 and 100 thousand dollars to book her for gigs. And in 2020, she was the fifth highest paid employee at Harvard, earning about a million dollars that year, slightly less than the university's president. Isn't that amazing for a a professor? Um, And then Ariely, he had this really famous book called Predictably Irrational. I believe there's a Netflix series or something like that that's coming soon. Yeah, yeah, coming out Um, soon. uh, In a given week, this is the New Yorker article again. In a given week, he might fly from Sao Paulo to Berlin to Tel Aviv. Uh, He has said that he worked with multiple governments and Apple. He had ideas for how to negotiate with the Palestinians with an interview maybe he's needed now uh, yes. given the current news when an interviewer asked him to list the famous names in his phone contacts he says Jeff Bezos um, CEOs of American Express founder of Wikipedia like so we're talking big deal people here
1: yes and uh, and this whole thing the um, this that, that idea that you signed at the top it's, it's very of that sort of moment in psychology right it's like, so we've talked about a bit before about priming mm. studies and all these sort of things you know where you you can just give people these little subconscious cues and it totally changed their behaviour and uh, you know when in null Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow this is very much of that sort you know that that sort of era of like look I can make you I can make you on or or when we were talking actually about um in the premium episode for uh paid subscribers we were talking about unconscious bias and things it was just this Mm. very much this idea that you can you can trigger these unconscious things in your mind and and it will change your behavior in this subtle but profound ways that was that's really part of it yeah.
0: Lots of studies by both Ariely and Gino on that General idea of, of these small influences that really change your behavior, um, and uh, so this was a, the this is a study. That, the, the signing at the top thing was one that they worked on together, and it's actually a study that has multiple studies within it. So it's like a I think it had three studies mm-hmm. um, within one paper that all were tr- sort of testing the same idea. The study that the Arieli was mainly responsible for was uh, called out for for having some very dodgy looking data um, a couple of years ago now. So this has been. Discussed for a while. Uh, the actual
1: paper, the, have we said? The paper itself came out in what 2011 or something like that. Was yeah, it? it's quite yeah. an old
0: paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mm. been it's been around the, the you know for, for quite a while, and sort of only recently have people noticed, or mm. certainly only recently they've said publicly that yeah. they noticed that something's gone wrong. Um, and so the idea was that it, it included data on it was about insurance claims, right? So you're yeah. you're signing at the top or the bottom of, of forms, and about wh- whether you would be honest or dishonest on an insurance claim. And it included data on how far people drove uh, in a particular time period, I guess, mm. a year or uh, uh, I, I'm not sure, not sure what the time period was. And if you look at the data... You would expect, you know, if you just collected a data set on how far people drove in their cars, you would find some people who drive a very long distance. You'd find some people who drive a very short distance. But most people would drive kind of an average distance. Um, you'd see, you know, the odd person who never uses the car, the odd person who drives massive distances. Like you would see a sort of maybe a bell curve distribution, right? Maybe that makes sense. I I
1: mean, yeah, maybe. Or or I guess maybe some sort of, is it a Poisson distribution where it's shifted over to the left or you know, or a... Um, yeah yeah it's, or maybe but you know you'd imagine that there would be a peak somewhere in the middle, and yes. that m- most people would drive um, a medium ish sort of amount, and only a very few people would drive tens of thousands of miles you right. know, or,
0: the average person's yeah. you know maybe driving to work each day but not driving up and down the country like mm. a truck driver would or something what you wouldn't see is what the data actually looked like and what the data looked like if you graph them out is like a big rectangle so the 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 distribution of the data is a big rectangle in that people were equally as likely to drive a very small number of miles as they were to drive a very large number of miles. So to quote the Data Colada uh, entry, between time one and time two, just as many people drove 40,000 miles as drove 20,000, as drove 10,000, as drove 1,000, as drove 500, etc., this is not what real data look like, and we can't think of a plausible benign explanation for it.
1: There's a great, I mean, also what's absolutely amazing, what, the, what really tips it over into this just can't be right, is that exactly as many people drove 40,000, 40, uh, 45,000 miles, and exactly as many dro- uh, as did between 45,000 and 50,000, but zero people drove more than 50,000 miles. They're right, not, it just, well, it just it, cuts it, it, off It just data. cuts off. It was a sheer yeah. drop at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's no so, more
0: data for anyone who drives more than that. So
1: 1,300 yeah. who drove between 40,000 and 45,000, 1,300 who drove between 45,000 and 50,000. And the highest value is 49,997, and then just stops. There's, there's literally not <laughs> yeah. one. Right. It's so, insane. So
0: like, you would have to go to extraordinary lengths to collect a data set like that. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you would have to massively control every single participant that you're, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to collect data from. Any real data set is going to be a lot more, a lot messier and have a different distribution than that. These data yep. are fake. Yep. There's, there's, there's no way. They've been generated in a random number generator. They, they, don't, they don't exist. Yep. Um, and the only question is who is responsible for that. Now, my understanding is that the, the file, whether it's an Excel file or other, some kind of other uh, database uh, file, says the name Dan Ariely on it. Now, mm. I would say that that's quite strong evidence that it, uh, it was Dan Ariely that uh, was responsible for the data. But... He uh, says otherwise, and he in fact blames the insurance company who he uh, says got the data for him. Um, So he blames them. And I believe that they are now taking legal action against him, uh, or have certainly threatened it, because of course it doesn't look very good for your company if you have been accused of fabricating data in a scientific study. The people in the insurance company couldn't necessarily have known what Dan Ariely's hypotheses were, and yet the data... Happened to just you know fit the hypothesis that he had, which is that signing at the top would be better than uh, than signing at the bottom for people's honesty. Um, so it does kind of hint that it might have been him, but we can't say that for sure. No. Please don't sue us. Yes, yeah. and and the, but the but the the most mind blowing thing about it is that in that same paper, remember I mentioned there were multiple studies in the in that paper. There was also a study that was mainly led by Francesca Gino, and it has what looked like fake data as well um, and that's what the most recent big uh, flurry of excitement has been about because just recently this came out that uh, uh, Harvard had been investigating for the past couple of years actually they've done a huge long investigation uh, of Francesca Gino and they've concluded as well, uh, the, the, the same thing that the Data Collada uh, in, uh, investigators have uh, concluded, which is that the data in Francesca Gino's uh, part of that paper and in several other papers that she published are not are not correct
1: yes this one was more of a I mean because that one in the Dan Ariely pay, uh, study was it was very straightforwardly you can see yeah. how this has been done it's been a random random number generator and it's very obvious when you plug it into it and you know when you graph it out this one I uh, correct me if I'm wrong it's a bit more of a subtle detective story in that they they looked at like excel files which keep records of how of where numbers were originally put in which cell yes. and they and it turns out some numbers which were in Cell A35 were later moved to cell, you know, V28 or something. And exactly. That,
0: yeah. And, and Excel keeps a little record, uh, which you don't necessarily know about. Um, yeah. uh, I've I've never heard of this. I've used Excel not a lot in my life. Um, more than I. Would ever want to, but um, yeah. uh, and I, I didn't know that it had a little thing called Calc Chain, which is this little. It's especially if you if you're doing um, calculations to produce new numbers, hmm. uh, it, it it remembers essentially where the the, the cells were. And God, you must out, be
1: you must be nervous about all that fraud you committed then. Yeah,
0: that's right, all the fraud Fair. I committed using Excel. Yeah, Fair. so they were able to to show that the cells that had been moved around the the the, the data set ones with higher values had been put in the condition where they would raise the the, the average score. Ones with lower values had been put in the condition where they uh, would lower the, the, the average um, score to make a result that wasn't actually there in the original mm. data. So so, so th- this isn't a case where the data, I don't think, this, this isn't a case where the data were just made up entirely. No. This is a case where the data were real, but then mucked about with after yeah. the fact to make them into a result that never existed
1: so some some of the high results in the in the sort of well the, imagine that you did a you did a um uh imagine this was a medical trial and you did it you were doing a, a drug or something like that people who the people you, you take some of the people who got better quickly out of the placebo group and put it in put them into the the treatment group <laughs> right. and put people yeah. who got better, better slowly out of the treatment group and put them into the placebo group mm-hmm. on the data so it looks as yep. though that the yeah so it's that is at least that is what is being alleged basically
0: yeah, yeah, and there's multiple other, and you know we, we 're not going to go into all the detail it 's not fun hearing about excel spreadsheets on uh, on on a podcast, really, but there are multiple other investigations on the data Collada site, and mm. you know Harvard has also done their own investigation back this uh, and, and, and back them up i think there's a there's a, um, a one thousand two hundred page report that i don 't think has been published in full yet. Yeah. Which is astonishing to think of, because they they really have you know spent an enormous amount of time on this, alleging other similar things where you can find hints that the cells in the spreadsheet have been moved around after the fact after the data were collected mm. um in ways that support the hypothesis of the paper um and not legitimate things like reordering the data to do a particular make a graph you know where you're putting the higher things on one end and the lower things on the other you know th- things like that that would be legitimate no these are these are illegitimate falsifications of the of the of the data set
1: yes uh, we should also say um to con- that, that gino has sued harvard denying these claims and that she um she says there is that the that they've over- that data collada have overlooked certain uh, other mo- data movements that don't support this claim other people say that's just not true and yeah. now and, and harvard is moving to throw out her her lawsuit saying it saying that, that, that her, her claims are uh, uh, false and not uh, and inappropriate but so yeah. like that we're you so know, she's suing
0: Harvard and the data collater bloggers yeah uh, for, um, for 25 million dollars million. Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable there's a there's a
1: patreon or something to or a kickstarter to um which we should get the de- a link for for people who want to support the data collider uh, Yeah, legal, I think it's still thing. going,
0: but they made a yeah. huge amount of money in just a few yeah. days when they announced it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I,
1: put, I stuck 50 quid in it or something. And, uh, um, uh, I,
0: I put substantially more than that in because I'm, I You're care much, much more about frauds you? than you. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, shouldn't, um,
1: I shouldn't have named my number. I put an amount in. I could have <laughs> yeah, exactly defrauded you.
0: Yeah, I recommend reading the New Yorker article on this, which we'll put in, which tells the story up to, you know, a couple of weeks ago um, and gives you a really good flavour of what Dan Ariely and Francesco Gino are like. Um, it will be very fascinating to see if uh, it really is the case. that. So, so Dan Ariely, by the way, is also under investigation by his university. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with this lawsuit. It's really bad if a lawsuit like this is successful because it means that people who are accused of fraud... Um, can sue people rather than actually showing that they're not fraudsters. They can just, you know, rely on the legal system to uh, bully people into, yeah. you know, ru- ru- ruining people's lives in 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 revenge for accusing them of. Uh, well, well of fraud. more
1: importantly, um, uh, like scientific claims shouldn't be established and shouldn't be judged true or false in the courts. So that's not right. that's not the appropriate place. You know, these are this totally. is a claim about what number, you know, what and what whether the scientific results are real or whether they've been found, yeah. you know, whether they've been come across honestly. And we, as we've talked about a couple of times before in this podcast, the, the courts are just not a good judge of that. That is not yeah. how these, these questions should be judged. And I, there, I is think, a part yeah.
0: of, there is a part of Gino's lawsuit, which is about how she was dismissed from Harvard and she alleges sexism and, and, and so on, which I, I don't know about the nuances of employment law. I have seen lawyers saying that that part of the lawsuit might have more credit to it than the, than, the, yeah. uh, um, than the rest. But certainly the bits about whether her data are fake or not, it's not something you should be no. deciding in a court.
1: She, if, she, if she can show that they're not, then uh, the data cloud of people are really Good, like they—they they are trying to find yep. out true things, and if yeah, she can, and say, they're tra- incredibly like, you know, careful too. They're not throwing yeah.
0: around mad accusations. They're very, very careful with what they say.
1: Yeah, so it, so yes. I mean, I don't know. It's very murky waters around here, and I—I I worry about it, too. You know, because neither of us are lawyers, but the <laughs> uh, my my sort of strong preference in all this is very much like sort sort scientific questions out in the scientific arena. Go and show show if if she feels that her data are reliable just simply show show people how that is and data collada will you know say yes fair enough but that it's gone through the courts and that seems a terrible outcome for everyone concerned as far as i'm concerned
0: totally totally yeah. I, I i agree and that's the uh, the the current fraud controversy uh or a brief summary of it It raises the general question of what we, you know, how much fraud there is in
1: science in general and what we should do about it um, and what other examples there are. And what Um, counts as fraud as well? Because we've talked a lot about i mean mm. i'm sure i'm sure we'll come to this but we talked all about the sort of finger on the scales sort of you know oh, i'm sure that i'm sure that uh, that data point is just an outlier and we should probably ignore that and oh look now i've got yeah. a, a statistically significant result and what a what a coincidence <laughs> you know yeah. or i just don't publish this study because it doesn't find one and i'll do a new study and, and is that fraud or is that just sort of a bit off and where do we draw the line and so on and so forth? So yes, well, I is think fraud. a lot
0: of it has to do with mm. with intention, doesn't it? Because mm. you know, so the definition that's given of fraud that that generally you know people who work in research integrity offices and so on use is FFP falsification, Financial fabrication. No. Oh, no, oh, sorry, that, that's that's <laughs> no.
1: that's a that's a football joke. You were not get to Carry <laughs> that on. Yeah. No, yeah.
0: again, I wouldn't wouldn't get that. Um, uh, FFP is falsification, fabrication, and plagiarism. So uh, plagiarism is obviously. It's a type of fraud, but it's not a sort of data fraud. I mean, you could do you could do plagiarism, and people do with entirely non scientific subjects. So that's that's a slightly different thing. But falsification and fabrication um, are kind of what we've talked about before. So the fabrication is what's alleged to have happened in that first study, the one about the the dri- driving insurance, yes, yeah, yeah. which uh, in which someone has created the data entirely from scratch. Also famously in psychology, the uh, the, the social psychologist Diederich Staple literally opened up an Excel spreadsheet and sat with a glass of wine at night after his family had gone to bed and just typed in the numbers that he wanted for his studies. Um, and then lo and behold, in the morning, there was a data set that he could analyse and and publish often in very top journals. So, so that's fabrication. That's outright, like deliberate, 100% deliberate.
1: Yeah, the numbers um, faking. have been making. up. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Then there's falsification, which is where you actually do an experiment. It doesn't turn out the way you want. And so you just move around the cells in the, in the, the, the spreadsheet. Yes. Um, uh, s- 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 that, as you say, blurs very, very rapidly into the sort of, um, yeah, p-hacking or data dredging sort of stuff where you're kind of not quite sure what your analysis is and you run several analyses until you f- find the answer that you want. You can't get in people's heads, so it's very hard to know what's deliberate and what isn't. I think a lot of instances of that kind of finagling around with the data are unintentional. People don't realise that doing that sort of stuff will make your data set much more likely Mm -hmm. to include false positives and have have just wrong results. But then I also think there are some people who do that stuff, they kind of know what they're doing. Um, And at that point, I think that's falsification and that's fraud. So if you define fraud that way, uh, as fabrication or falsification, and you just ask people, so there was a survey, there's a review of surveys done in 2009. Hmm. Um, now, this is quite old, it needs to be updated. If you just ask people, have you ever done these things? If you ask scientists, have you ever done these things in your research? 1.97%, I believe, say yes. So to about 2% of scientists. Now, that's an awful lot. That's a hell of a lot more than you would want. Yep. One in 50 scientists <laughs> admit to committing fraud. But if you ask them whether they know someone else who's committed fraud, like a colleague or you know another person that they know in the field, fourteen percent say Gosh, that
1: that implies that the average scientist has at least seven friends. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it, Stuart. It's true. It's true.
0: I can't imagine that. Um, sitting in the darkened lab with no one never talking to anyone. Um that's a terrifying number I wonder if the you know the real number is somewhere in the middle there because you probably wouldn't admit that you're you know if you had really committed fraud you're not going to admit to it so that number's probably lower um and maybe you suspect some things are fraudulent that other people have done but and actually people have there have been some follow ups um, they've mainly been focused on the 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 sub fraud stuff though you know like mm. have you ever been you know, focused only on the significant results of your study and not the non-significant ones, even though that paints a false picture of what happened in the study. You know, things like that, and yes. loads of people admit to that. Like, you know, some a fifth of people.
1: Uh, yeah, I definitely uh, know people in in sort of science who have sort of quietly admitted to that. Without they've made that, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And and part of this whole discussion is educating people as to, you know, the stuff you're doing is bad and drive science down mm. the wrong road. I, and you know, as I mentioned at the start, if you look at uh, a website like Retraction Watch mm. uh, which is the website that tries to log every time a scientific article is retracted from a journal that is you know, re- withdrawn from the, kind of the scientific record, although it still exists online you see that there is a sort of constant low level stream of, f- of fraudulent articles getting retracted
1: we we discussed quite a few on on this podcast, right? One's exactly,
0: yeah, yeah. The uh, f- vaping ones that got retracted uh, for for um, for uh, well, that, I suppose they were major errors. So that, that and that's a good point actually, because yeah. sometimes papers get retracted because of errors. Sometimes they get retracted because of plagiarism, and sometimes they get retracted because of fraud. Now, the errors can be honest mistakes, um, mm. and in that case, it's actually a good thing to retract your paper because you're admitting that you got something wrong, and that's good yeah but uh when it comes to fraud that's that's uh that's a less good uh reason to retract your to retract your paper um, yes and the study uh, show is
1: coming down against fraud like a <laughs> a <bit. laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, bold exactly. stance but we say that lying is bad The Studies Show is brought to you by The Eye newspaper, um, which is a British newspaper for which Stuart writes, uh, as we true. may have mentioned once or twice before. Um, <laughs> it's got, always got lots of stuff in it, which is worth reading. At the moment, I've been, uh, or recently I've been reading this, a uh, look back on with Nail and I, which people of a certain age may remember as sort of the great 1980s movie about miserable drunken actors, and just everyone quotes forever it just, it just spends it just has a lovely look back on how that changed cinema Richard sort of E. How, Grant right? Richard E. Grant yes. and, and Paul McGann who I think ended up in Doctor Who or something like that no, I don't, um, don't recognise that name I have seen the film it was such a long time ago that
0: I can't really recall much about it but I remember them Reading Hamlet, standing in the rain or something—is that a scene from well, it's, it?
1: Well, the the scene where they were standing in the rain is saying we've we, we've gone on holiday by mistake in the Lake District. Oh right, and it's just it's just got it's one all the most quotable lines, and um, the guy who smoked an awful lot of weed, who then turned up basically basically playing the same role in one of the Wayne's World films. It's, it, <laughs> it is a, it is a really good film, but it's yeah. so memeable. About half the memes on the internet seem to come from it, and yes. this this piece in the eye, looking back on it, and also on the, on a book that's come out now, which is about how it was made uh, by the director it's, it's, it's a lovely read and it made nice. me sort of remember this film And you saw ages ago anyway so that's, uh, so that's The i sponsors of the study show and we're very grateful for yeah, it
0: yeah you can uh, get a, a deal on your subscription to The Eye if you go to inews.co.uk slash podcast um, and uh, you can you can take out a subscription there and get access to the whole thing including all of the stuff that I write uh, through the week the study show is also sponsored by Works in Progress magazine, uh, Ooh, which what's is Works in Progress. Stuart, well, we have to start doing this charade every yes, week <laughs> because, of course, <laughs> we uh, we actually read it. And we don't need to keep asking each other what the website is because we know yes. it is. It's a great uh, online magazine all about technological progress, science. And, uh, and actually and, and quite a lot of history as well, um, including mm. this this recent piece uh, by Ed Conway, um, which is on uh, copper uh, and how copper basically runs the electrical world and we we can't really do without it. it especially once we start to get um, electric cars, we're going to be even more dependent yeah. on uh, on copper. And this article, which is called. The discovery of copper. Uh, Clever. Yeah, Tell, tells tells the story
1: of of this um, early twentieth century. I get what, what would you call him? Ed Kant describes him as sort of an alchemist. He's a guy ah, who learned yeah. to turn. Yeah, yeah. Learned to turn copper in well, or turn copper ore into. Copper in this more dramatic way, yeah. you know, I mean, He's so, an engineer, so, I guess you would say. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, yeah. yeah uh, and he and there's loads of exciting stuff about him
0: blowing up mountains to find uh, copper and how much we sort of owe him for the current situation we're in. And um, it's got stats uh, on on how you
1: know, much mining of copper there is. It's it's the sort of thing that Works in Progress does really well, actually, because it takes this sort of topic you wouldn't think about, yes. and talks about the sort of the practical impacts of the under you know the underlying process industrial process that changed the world. Uh, it's also like, it's, it's stuff like, the um, in the early 20th century before Jackling started what he was doing, there was this um, genuine concern that the world was going to run out of copper because there wasn't enough of the high... Quality ore—the sort of more than five percent mm-hmm. copper in the rock stuff—and he found this way with sloshing. I don't know. Don't the, the details are not important. But, you know, <laughs> sloshing around the um, the the ore in some oily uh, solvent that he could uh, separate out much smaller quantities of copper, and therefore make it economical to right. get hold of. And mm-hmm. that and that made the world's sort of access to copper vastly easier. And the amount and just and sort of drove what's called the, the second industrial revolution—the um, the the change to an electronic electrification, world, an electrical world. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Electrified world. Anyway, fascinating uh, uh, stuff. Yeah, it, it's exactly, it's a kind of a, a, a canonical
0: example of what Works in Progress magazine does. So you can find that, and it's all free to read, at worksinprogress.co. And uh, we are, as always, really grateful that they support the study show. We are indeed. Thanks very much. Now, on with the show. Now, we've talked about psychology research, the studies on Honesty and dishonesty, and so on. Um, and the question is: Is fraud really just a thing that happens in soft science, rather than uh, rather than you know uh, a harder science or a more serious, developed, mature science, like say physics or something like that?
1: And I'm no. going to go ahead and guess you're going to say no. That's no. Stuart. So, <laughs> social scientist defends social science. Shocking.
0: It's <laughs> true. Um, but no, there've been there've been quite a few cases of really high profile fraud in physics. We've already mentioned one on the episode that we did about superconductors, that there was the semiconductor researcher, Jan Hendrik Schoen, mm. who faked, I believe he's had 32 papers retracted from the literature, okay. which is an astonishing number, faked uh, data uh, when he was at Bell Labs, and that was a huge deal uh, back in the just the turn of the century, um, mm-hmm. 2001-ish. Um, and just in recent weeks, a superconductor researcher... Uh, University of Rochester, has had several papers retracted, including p- from Nature. Uh, so like top, top, you know, scientific journals. And would you believe it, he has uh, claimed that he has found a room temperature superconductor.
1: Now um, remind me, so, but his was the one where it was, it was room temperature, but like volcanic pressure, you know. Like I think it's the a higher yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it
0: wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the obviously real lk99 superconductor which we've talked about before yes uh, which is, uh, so is not a real club. one
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah but this one you know wasn't just a wasn't just a preprint posted online this one was a uh, several articles in in nature or at least at least one of the articles in nature was was about this hmm. um that's incredibly depressing to think because uh even what you would think would would be you'd think there would be data that you could play around with less you know um in in psychology everything's quite soft and you can run all these different statistical procedures and you can p hack and you can data dredge and you can do all these things to find the data that you uh to find the results that you want in your data but actually you can do that across many many different fields even Mm. and including materials physics
1: yeah okay yeah, so I mean that that does that does sound bad. Nature, you feel like nature should have stronger like guardrails against this stuff, and it does seem a shame. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hmm. I, and and you know, in fact, if you look at the
0: uh, so retraction watch the website that I mentioned has a leaderboard, and you can see among the very top retracted scientists. So they they actually they they. Um, collect the number of retractions that each scientist gets and make a make a leaderboard out of it which is you know a slightly ironic uh, thing or slightly mm. you know um, g- dark humor i guess uh, to to have a leaderboard of the worst scientists in the world i think i wrote somewhere that it's like the opposite of getting a nobel prize it's yeah. like you're at the very bottom of the of the chain um, and uh, the worst one actually there's been a couple of number changes recently where the the guy who was at the top who was uh, Yoshitaka Fuji, who's an anesthesiologist, who had 172 papers retracted from the literature, which is, correctly, astonishing. Think about it. Has been replaced by um, Joachim Bolt who is an anesthesiologist and he's had oh. 194 papers retracted from the literature. Um, at number three, you've got Hironobu Ueshima. And tell me, what,
1: what's, uh, what's his specialty?
0: An anesthesiologist oh. and he has had <laughs> 124 papers extracted from the scientific literature. Um, and actually, after that point, the number four, five, and six are not anesthesiologists. God, and it's like Kenya s- in
1: the long-distance running. It's yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: And then number seven is the social psychologist Diederik Stapel that I mentioned. So actually, hmm. and the other ones, by the way, are orthopedics. Two orthopedics researchers who work together, so that's why they're both in the in the in the leaderboard. And a kind of engineering, like strength of steel and things like that, uh, doing experiments on that sort of thing. He, he has a hundred retractions. Alain is his name.
1: A lot of, uh, I'm looking at your, your names, a lot of Japanese people, which I, I have no idea if there's a reason for that. The, um, yeah, yeah, a yeah. uh, uh, uh,
0: lot of, a lot of Japanese people and a lot of anesthesiologists. Now, these are tiny numbers of people, so it's very hard to mm. draw, uh, conclusions, but what, I, I don't know, what, why do you think there
1: would be lots of anesthesiologists for instance? Like, um, I guess all the people who are, uh, lots of people are asleep on, on the job. That's, that's <laughs> the... <laughs> Ooh, very good. So, thank very you. good.
0: <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It could just be a coincidence. It could also be that, that if you're trying to come up with an explanation, this is pure speculation, that you know, we don't know that much about, about human anesthesiology and actually it's quite tricky to, um, to assess what's happening in studies and so you can kind of slip stuff in because there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of ways you could convince people that you've done research or something. I don't know, I'm just kind of just speculating. Yeah. Um, but also it could be I think there's probably more of a selection effect, which is that the one of the main guys who uh, has been working on finding fake papers, his name's John Carlyle, uh, he's a sort of fraud spotter guy, um, happens to be an anesthesiologist, and he has all these mathematical techniques uh. that he uses to spot fake randomized controlled trials. So he's able to apply these um, techniques that check whether... For instance, like just uh, um, it's similar to what we talked about before, like um, noticing patterns in the data that can't possibly be real, that can't possibly, mm. that wouldn't come about through real data, like the control group and the experimental group both have exactly the same distribution of uh, of data. Um, and that implies that one's been copied and pasted into the other. Um, they have the same standard deviation or, or something like that and a slightly different mean. Um, and, you know, the chances that they would have exactly the same number are vanishingly small, except if someone has deliberately fabricated the data so i think probably it's because people you know look for it in certain places um or at least that's a big part of it why are there so many researchers in japan that have been um uh, accused of this again you could come up with some idea about the culture of universities in japan and how um my understanding is that it's much harder to question your supervisor your um superiors and 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 get heard and whistleblowing is is much trickier and so maybe there's um a lot of fraud happening there but then again these are people who got caught eventually if you yeah. look at the details of the case the the guy the, um, who was at the top um Yoshitaka Fuji um worked in many different universities like in several different places so it, he was able to hide the fraud that he was um, that he was doing uh, you know there wasn't one university that was sort of responsible for watching his stuff but it's, it's very hard to tell and obviously there's only a few people in this leaderboard um, you would have to do uh, you'd have to do a more sort of comprehensive analysis and then even then if you did a comprehensive analysis you we haven't detected all the fraud yet. And, That's... you know, there's probably people out there who are hiding and we, we'll we never find them. And they might be the best frauds. You know?
1: Well, I see, you mentioned selection effects. And, of course, this entire thing is going to be the, just hugely prone to a gigantic selection effect, which is that you, the only frauds you ever find out, the only frauds you can study are the ones who are bad enough to get caught. Are the ones...
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, mm. And so the best fraudsters um, uh, may never get caught. And that is a rather terrifying thought
1: yeah so we, so a lot of what these fraud detectives do right is like looking for patterns in the data you're saying that don't that couldn't um that couldn't possibly yeah. exist
0: yeah so so John Carlyle looks at things like uh, groups in uh randomized trials, but there are other methods out there that you can use to spot um for instance, if the average is calculated across uh questionnaire data so you know in in loads of psychology. Studies: People are filling in questionnaires with their preferences. Maybe you get a hundred people, uh, or well, that would be a chance to be a fine thing in a lot yeah. of these experiments. Twenty people to fill in a survey uh, where they have to rate their liking for something out of five, and it turns out that if you have twenty people and you're they're rating something out of five, there's only a certain number of averages that you can get f- mm. from that. Right? So I, I I'm not um, good enough at maths to calculate it straight off the top of my head, but you know you might be able to get an average of 3.35, but you can't get an average of 3.47 or something like that. You couldn't
1: get, for example, a perfect thirds. You could, like, there's no, like, I don't think there'd be, you couldn't get an average of 0.333 recurring. Right, right, right.
0: And and so if you do, and that's just a very basic mathematical thing. Like, there are just mm. no ways to to average up 20 people's answers on a five-point scale that come up with that answer. Mm. That's just not, they come up with that average, I should say. The problem is that lots of papers out there do have this problem, and this has been called the, the granularity-related inconsistency of means, it's uh, GRIM for short, yep. uh, designed by um, our mutual friend uh, Nick Brown and uh, James Heathers. Anyway, there are these very simple techniques that you can use to spot dodgy data, and Nick and James have found loads of papers that mm. um, have these grim errors in their statistics now it doesn't necessarily mean that it's fraudulent if you find these these mistakes, but it does mean that something's gone wrong and it can often be a hint that uh, you know a flag that something fraudulent has has has, uh, has happened. So um, there are these kind of mistakes again. It's it's just going back to the very start. It's like. Do these data look like they came from a natural process where people went out and collected data and then put it into a spreadsheet and the spreadsheet represents the exact measurements that were made in the real world or has someone tampered with it at some point? Um, And that tampering could be innocent in some respect, like maybe someone thought they were doing the right thing by cutting out certain numbers from the spreadsheet for some convoluted reason or is it that actually it was deliberately done to make the results look like... The way they, the way they did, the way they, the way they want, um, the way they want yeah. them to do for their hypothesis. Um, there's another kind of um, fraud spotting as well, and um, th- th- that's um, in images. Um, you've seen all these images that uh, Elizabeth Bick, who is one yes. of the amazing fraud spotters, posts on on Twitter. She's got and, incredible
1: uh, eye. She must have. It's just a real yeah. talent. Yeah. So she looks at things <clears> like
0: um, blots. Um, so, you know, you can use these uh, scientific blots to work out what proteins are present in a particular uh, substance or um, w- certain parts of DNA or RNA. So crystallography
1: different... type things where you. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Blotting methods that, that are very commonly used. And scientists will often post a photo of those blots in their uh, scientific paper to, hmm. uh, to to show a particular result, show evidence for that and the blots should have fairly random like they're they're kind of rectangular shapes but they should have random edges you know like they're 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 kind of all over the place um, in their in their edges um and so if you see the same exact shape twice in the same blot something funny is going on. Yeah. Um, and Michael Blasland, who did a, a show which we'll link to called, called The Truth Police that, that featured some of these people and it also featured me um, talking about it, um, likened it to, like if you look at your family photo and you see Uncle Derek twice in the picture, mm. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Like someone has fiddled about with that photo. Uh, yeah. That's not a true photo of what happened unless he has a an identical twin that no one knew about or, or something <laughs> like that. Um And Elizabeth Bick looked at more than 20,000 papers published in biomedical journals between 1995 and 2014. uh, And she found that nearly 4% of them had some kind of duplication or other sort of photoshopping to their biological images.
1: Yeah, which is amazing. Yes, That's a surprisingly high number. But like you say, it's not... There's not all of these will necessarily be fraud, right? But they no. will be. That's certainly it. From a Bayesian point of view, as I like to always say, you know, it mm. raises, raises your probability, doesn't it, that something funny has gone on there? Absolutely.
0: It could have been that the research assistant who was responsible for the the lab thought that it would make things neater if he uh, changed the contrast in a picture, you know, on a particular part of the photo or something, mm. and uh, it's a sort of innocent error. And papers yeah. have been refracted for that for that sort of thing like someone in the lab just got the wrong end of the stick and did something wrong we didn't notice it but not noticing it is a is a really like important point to 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 make here all of these things we're talking about the the dodgy means the dodgy group sizes and uh, variabilities and the the pictures that are sort of once you know about it it's self-evidently something has gone wrong the peer reviewers have not seen this they have looked at these pictures presumably or maybe they just you know, glazed, their eyes glazed crew, yeah. over when they were looking at them or something. Um, but they've not noticed this and it's right in front of them. Yeah. Um, which tells you a lot about the peer review process, I think, which is that it's very imperfect and doesn't, you know, discover a lot of the major yeah. actual active frauds that uh, that get through into the into the scientific literature.
1: Okay. All right. So there, that's that's how fraud is spotted and that, you know, and, and that's also it's, it's maybe getting a bit of a sense of how common it is. But what I want to know is, you know, you're a scientist. Why do you commit so much fraud, Stuart?
0: <laughs> well, one reason is that um, because I can get away with it. Yeah, because you're bored. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm just really, I'm just really just don't have much to do and I want, <laughs> uh, want to, want to try. But, but seriously, though, I think that peer review stuff we're just talking about there is one of the main reasons that fraudsters do what they do, which is that uh, oftentimes it isn't spotted. Hmm. Uh, you can get a paper through the peer review system with really quite obviously fraudulent data in it Um, and um, often it's not noticed and it takes sometimes decades for fraud to be noticed the case of and that's even if some people start to you know raise suspicions so imagine cases where people don't raise suspicions um, uh, and don't notice anything. The Yoshitaka Fuji case, uh, I think it was about twelve years between people raising suspicions about his research and then anything actually getting retracted from the scientific literature. If you think well, about the case of Andrew Wakefield, <coughs> the uh, autism MMR fraud paper, mm-hmm. there were again. I think it was about twelve years between the publication of the paper and then when it was uh retracted from the literature
1: and the one which ones we've been talking about um that Dan Ariely um paper that was that was 2012 I look, went and looked it up so not 2011 like I said earlier right. but, right, but 2021 was the data collada piece saying this is dodgy and then there've been there've been expressions of concern attached to it since or has it been retracted
0: some um, uh I think some other of his papers have had this thing so this is what editors sometimes do in journals is that they're not they haven't quite got to the point where they're going to decide to retract Hmm. Um, a paper just yet but they put this expression of concern on it which is like a banner at the top of the paper that says this has been you know credibly accused of something something dodgy about this paper so just bear that in mind because of course you know we, th- th- these papers are still on the journal's websites and people are going through and reading them and potentially citing them to back up points hmm. or if it's a, a medical uh, paper they're actually sometimes using it to ba- base decisions on how to actually save people's lives or, you know, um, the the Joachim Bolt fraud, the one of the anesthesiologists, mm. if you if you included his papers in your overall decision, uh, in your overall analysis, so in like a meta-analysis of whether to use this particular procedure during surgery... Mm. Then um, it looked as if it was a life saving procedure, but actually, if you take his papers out, it was actually damaging and actually really? uh, killed Old more Crikey. patients than it. Yeah, yeah. So, so these are like serious <coughs> consequences that you can get from citing these uh, papers and reading these papers and having these papers available in the scientific literature that are based on fraudulent, uh, that are based on fraudulent data. So scary. You know, if you think about. Even in cases where it isn't life or death, but, you know, the amount of money that's wasted on these things, people following up on them uh, and trying to do scientific, you know, trying to do replication studies just purely within the scientific world, just trying to do replication studies and failing, wasting all that money. Politicians trying to base policy on them. You know, mm. these are these are uh, really depressing things. But uh, and the reason for that is that scientists trust each other you know there. uh you trust that people actually did the study that that they've written you trust mm. that the tables and the figures actually have accurate data in them you trust that the analyses were done in the way described and you trust that the data in the spreadsheet wasn't just made up while you were saying uh having a glass of red wine <laughs> um, and if you had to if you lived in a world where you had to question that all the time then you would go mad because no one has time to question every single aspect you have to take some things on trust and that's what fraudsters exploit
1: yeah uh, but when people are found out, I mean, this does seem to be the case, you know, when people are found, they are punished severely, right? So there is a there there is a system in place when where, by which people do end up, you know, fraudsters do get punished, is the hopeful thing. Well, there's
0: sometimes... That's the funny thing, is that there's a very scattershot attitude. Sometimes they're punished very harshly, like they lose their job, lose their tenure, whatever. But other times, people have been found to fabricate data, and they get things like you cannot apply for grants from this government research agency for one year. <laughs> like that sort of thing. It's like almost mm. the equivalent of being given a suspended sentence or something. Like, you, you know, you're yeah. you're giving a punishment, but it's very light touch. Slap on the wrist style thing. Yeah, I think it's a weird attitude because it's both the worst thing you can do and people don't seem to care about it. People like Nick Brown and James Heathers and Elizabeth Bick will tell you that they sometimes spend years mm. trying to get papers you know trying to get journal editors to care at all about a paper that they ha- that they found to have obvious objective fraudulent or erroneous uh data in it yeah um some journal editors just don't care they're just too busy they've got too much else on and so also, this it's weird... embarrassing
1: for the journals right like if if, if, if if someone comes in and says look this paper that you published in 2014 it's got loads of made-up numbers in it what are you going to do about it, they, it it's it might be easier to just pretend you, the, the email went to the spam filter than to <laughs> do something about it <laughs> yeah. You
0: know? yeah yeah just stonewall yeah yeah and, and you can sort of see why they would be careful because you don't like people are innocent until proven guilty and you don't want to throw around these kind of accusations because they can be career ending or reputation destroying but also there there must be a happy medium between you know uh, just never investigating anything and immediately firing everyone who's accused of fraud, you know, um, and I think we're, we're far too close to the uh, not caring side in so many cases. Uh, I've been involved in a couple of these cases myself where not even fraudulent, but just just mistakes that I've found in people's papers. You email the journal editor and then you just never hear back or you get a very cursory response. Mm. That's not how it should be. And I wonder if part of the reason for that is because we just publish too much stuff. There's just too many scientific papers. These journals are just flooded with tons and tons and tons of research. And so they just can't, they just don't have the time to look at any individual thing because it can take so long to prove it. I mean, that Harvard investigation of the Francesca Gino thing has been going on for two years. Mm. Um, uh, It takes so long to prove to sort of everyone's satisfaction that something is fraudulent.
1: But also I think that one reason why scientists commit fraud is because they can get away with it like you say but the but the 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 thing what one thing that is driving them is that the incentive structures of science are terrible that everyone is driven to Hmm. publish loads and loads of things you know you have to publish papers and have to get them in high impact journals and if you don't your career doesn't go anywhere and and if your if your study doesn't um find a statistically significant result then you might not get it into a into a into a journal because they're only interested in novel results which is its own huge problem.
0: Obviously this doesn't push everyone into committing outright fraud, but it pushes everyone into doing stuff that they wouldn't necessarily do, so like cutting corners, being sloppy, uh is is one consequence, hyping things up and exaggerating is another mm. consequence, but also, you know, leaning on the data a little bit, and in some extreme cases that leaning becomes a deliberate uh, uh attempt to, you know, deceive Great
1: rules, yeah.
0: yeah. And so and once you get big, big papers, you get a big job and you get a promotion and you get a job at a university with a higher rating and blah, 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 blah. Um, and that can be uh, very enticing uh, to, to many people. And so you can so- totally see how the environment that uh, we've produced around science is, uh, is very conducive to this kind of problem. Another reason. Uh, related to, you know, I talked about career incentives, but also like people get famous if they they have big exciting results. Scientists uh, are often um, interested in 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 uh, being famous and mm. having all the kind of awards and attention and so on that that provides. The biggest case, I think, um, one of the most amazing cases of fraud is is the case of Paolo Macchiarini, who um, was this surgeon who uh, claimed to be able to replace your windpipe with a kind of stem cell seeded plastic tube, um, right. which would then uh, not get rejected like uh, normal transplants uh, very regularly do. Um, and he ended up like patients died in his uh, uh, um, operations. He, he faked the data in the papers that he published, including in some top journals like The Lancet um, and uh, and fake people's medical records. Um, and people died. Uh, he's actually One of the very rare examples of a scientist who gets punished uh, properly, he's actually now been sent to prison. Um, But that was because he ended up like people actually, you know, I think he was sent to prison for assault. I think that was the that was the charge in Sweden. For doing this, um, but before that was all discovered, this was an amazing thing. He was tipped for a Nobel Prize. He was brought to the Karolinska Institute, which is actually the place f- from where they award the Nobel Prizes, at least the medicine ones. Mm. Um, all the professors were desperate to get him to come across from Italy to, to their their um, uh, university because he was such a big deal. And he was basking in this, in all this incredible fame and attention, doing all these press releases. All the while, he must have known all his stuff was fake and and, and the, the the transplants never worked in the first place.
1: Yeah. Next next you up. mentioned
0: yeah you mentioned uh you've you know you've written extensively about this uh people um earning money from yes. from scientific research. And so clearly this is a this is a factor as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, just the idea of um like so and again most of I I I did this big article I've mentioned it before here but in nature about psychologists who get famous and for some resu- for some scientific result they find, and then going and giving talks about that result, um, and they can be paid tens or tw- you know uh, f- five or six figure f- sums for the amount for for those talks sometimes at you know or yeah. consultancy at um, uh, at, at uh, corporations or you know talking at business schools or after dinner speaking and all sort of stuff, and obviously then there's a great big incentive to find. That your result continues to be true because if suddenly your yeah if your if your result stops if if you find if your next study finds that your big exciting result isn't true, then you're suddenly going to find your revenue stream dries up, and that's an obvious incentive for people in various ways to just make sure the data continues to find things. And you know that that doesn't mean mean fraud in every case, but it's obviously an incentive towards fraud, which you can understand totally. Totally. yep um and there are there are other cases that
0: are even more extreme than that, like um uh, Suk Wang the uh, the um Korean scientist who was again incredibly famous, so fame was clearly a big thing for him as well, but also earned loads and loads of money um, he did research on cloning um, mm-hmm. he he actually genuinely did clone a dog for the first time but also had loads of fake papers where he claimed to do all sorts of human stem cell cloning related research and um uh, he embezzled loads of money from the from the research grants and ended up spending it on like buying a car for his wife, making donations to politicians, like incredible things like that. He was an amazing sort of operator i think he 's still around he 's kind of um, still doing doing research at a much much more obscure university than the one he was at but He literally was on like Korean postage stamps and things for a while because he was so big and famous um, and it turned out that he was just making it all making it all up
1: that must have been quite a big story uh, and then there 's people
0: who just believe the result a bit too much. It's, it's not a matter of earning money. It's not a matter of earning fame. Uh, although all these, these are not mutually exclusive, hmm. you know, explanations. They all kind of uh,
1: tie into the same thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think I think um, a lot of fraudsters actually just believe that their result is true. Um, certainly some of them say that uh, if you ask them. I mean, obviously don't believe what a roster tells you, but uh, or or certainly take it with a massive pitch of salt, but um, I think a lot of them think that they really have discovered something or they feel like they saw it at some point, and then the data that they get from their subsequent experiments just never quite show exactly what they want, and then it, and then they just have to end up giving them a little push, and I think that happens in quite a lot of cases, especially because the the line between fudging it a little bit and fully faking it is so it's so blurry there are also Political reasons for for this, um, just very recently, and I'm terrified to even talk about this because it's such a sensitive political issue, but there's a researcher at Florida State University, Eric Stewart, who um, has had multiple papers retracted for... for, for fraudulent data in papers that were often cited to support the idea of systemic racism in the US. This is uh, in the world of kind of criminology, um, police encounters with with black people and so on. Maybe it's possible that he just believed it so strongly that he needed to find something to back it up. And that's what, that's what you, that's what you got. Um, Incidentally, he is black himself and the researcher that found the fraud was white and there was very acrimonious stuff, including at one point, Eric Stewart, Accusing the researcher who found the fraudulent data of lynching him, oh god! Which I think that's is just, very unfortunate. That's,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. I mean, yeah, but it does get nasty, right? This, it's people's lives, livelihoods are at stake in this stuff, and it gets very angry. Yeah.
0: Who would want to be a fraud spotter? Like, yeah. who, like, the, what are the incentives for people checking? For fraud, this is the sort of thing... I mean, this is an extreme case, but it's the sort of thing you get. Elizabeth Bick has had massive amounts of bullying online after questioning uh, some hydroxychloroquine research by Didier Raoult, the uh, French researcher. She gets tons of all these weird French accounts popping up online, attacking her all the time because she she dared to question this famous French researcher's very dodgy-looking data. Like, there's no particular incentive for people to do this and yet just a few people just do it anyway out the goodness of their hearts which is which is amazing obviously
1: yeah, I mean Nick Brown and John uh, James he- James Heather's do it. Yep, but it's sort of, it's not their job, right? It's do, they do nope. it in no, no. in the in their sort of um, spare time or just for a bit of fun. And you know, because yeah. Nick Nick spent most of a career working in like engineering. You know, it wasn't this was just he's just doing it as a sort of sideline um, and keeps yeah, taking absolutely. down big and papers. There are
0: there are organizations like in in the US. There's the there's the Office for Research Integrity, and they kind of help universities investigate fraud claims when accusations are made you know in the uk each university has a research integrity office or research integrity officer um who people can send complaints into and stuff but it's not like very many people are like proactively going out there and trying to find fraud certainly journals aren't that interested in in doing it so the the ends up that it's a bunch of people online sometimes anonymous uh people online who are going out there and trying to find um you know investigating where someone's seen something that doesn't look quite right uh maybe a figure or a number in a paper that doesn't add up um and you know it's just amateurs amateurs doing this um i sometimes get copied into these amateur people emailing universities with fraud accusations you know after my book came out because a lot about fraud in there i sometimes get copied in and you just it's just random people and then i don't know if any of ever gets followed up it goes into the system it becomes a sort of confidential process and you never necessarily hear what happens
1: yeah uh-huh. um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's it, i just really don't it's, it's it's a it's a, a miss it's a big hole in the scientific system there isn't like a formal sort of codified way of hunting these things and i, yeah. I so it's something that should be made i think
0: uh, what can we do about fraud, Tom? What are the things that uh, we could um, we could actually do to prevent or deal with with fraud? One thing that pops pops up all the time when I talk about this to people is they say, "Is AI the answer to this?" Uh, can we uh, use ai to to solve this problem
1: and it seems to me like not a crazy thing to say right because a lot of these things like the grim method the grim the the checking whether the means are plausible would be very mm-hmm. straightforward to do, you wouldn't even need a, a sophisticated ai you just need a yeah. a program that could go through and check the means compared to the data you know and and more than that if you got if you got a, a reasonably sophisticated like an llm or something like that a, a modern AI that could just go through and say, I I should run this sort of check on this, or are there any pictures that are duplicated within this paper or within that that I've seen before? It doesn't seem mad to suggest that would be a very useful tool to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think up until very recently, there just, it was always, you know, in the future, we might be able to do this. You know, the eyes of someone like Elizabeth Bick were actually much more accurate than uh, the best AI model that you you could get. But now, as of the last few months, you were able to put in, Images into, you know, GPT four uh, uh, and 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 things like it, and have it analyze them in, in a lot of detail. And uh, it can't be long until people are using that. You, you could use it as a gateway when you submit a paper to a journal. You just know that your all your stuff's going to get uh, going to get checked, like your suitcase goes through the X ray machine when you before you go on a plane. Hmm. Just checking that you've not done anything dodgy to the the, the figures. Um, same with the the data itself. And by the way, there's going to come a point where. All the scientific papers that have previously been published, some AI will go through them and try and find uh, errors in them, uh, and it's going to be very embarrassing for a lot of people. I would, I would, yeah. I would uh, expect this is this kind of already happened. There was an algorithm called StatCheck. Very limited; it could just do could just look at one particular type of statistical analysis and check whether it made sense. And it went through and highlighted loads of instances where there were errors. Um, and unfortunately, some people ended up, you know, getting an automated email from the algorithm oh that said, I have found your paper has, and then I I got one at one point. Oh. I have found that your paper has zero errors in it. <laughs> why, <laughs> why, have been, why have I
1: been saying this?
0: Just about, oh, it's, you no, know. it's
1: like a pat on the shoulder, you know, pat on the back. Saying, I guess you. so.
0: But, uh, you know, you don't, when you first see the email, uh, it's a bit, of a bit of a frightening prospect. But also there's a downside, which is, AI is also going to allow us to fake, mm. going to allow fraudsters to fake stuff much more convincingly. You know, the reason a lot of fraudsters get caught is that they have made mistakes that make it look like their data, um, that make it obvious that their data wasn't collected in a real-world scenario and was made up by a person. Yeah. It's really hard to make up, you know, just with your with your, with your your mind, it's really hard to make up a plausible-looking data set.
1: The one this uh, always makes you think of is Benford's Law. Do you know, do you know Benford's Law, Stuart?
0: Oh, yeah. It's like a sort of uh, w- what numbers appear in natural data sets.
1: Yes, exactly. So like, if, you, um, if you look at a real world data like set of almost like, anything, like um Scientific American article here I'm reading, which says, you know, you find it in country populations, river lengths, stock prices, the numbers found in a typical uh, edition of um, Scientific American you know to to pick the uh, yeah. Um they, uh So just they any already...
0: collections of numbers you can find exactly. that pattern. So what is the what is the pattern?
1: The pattern is that uh, roughly thirty percent of the numbers in that data set will be one and roughly twenty percent will be uh, two, but only about five percent will be nine. You see this, this this descending line of the huh. frequency. Um, whereas if you do random numbers, as you might do if you're using a doing committing fraud, you know if you're using a random number generator to make your uh, your data set for you, or then just, of course or just
0: picking the numbers f- f- for your like from your own brain, you know, like just, exactly. com- just coming up with them and not with a glass of wine as the, yeah. with a glass of wine or, mm-hmm. or, or yeah. Isn't there a thing where people tend to pick seven if you ask them just to pick a number? That,
1: that there is, I think, off the top of my head, but I. Wouldn't, yeah, I, I don't know, know if that's, there's
0: own. evidence for that, but the point is mm. that if you ask people to come up with what appears to be a random set of numbers, it often isn't.
1: Yeah, it won't follow Benford's law, and so uh, forensic um, accountants often go through datasets looking looking for whether or not they follow the the, uh, the Benford's law. It's just it's just one way of looking, and it doesn't always yeah. indicate fraud, but it's just it's it's the sort of thing that an AI might be able to do more effectively than a human yeah. and that a checker would pick up.
0: And it's not dispositive. Like if you find that the numbers in a data set don't follow Benford's law, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily fraudulent. It's just, it's just a kind of a flag that you then need to look at it more carefully because there could be other reasons why it doesn't follow Benford's law that are a bit more complicated. Um, so it doesn't prove, it doesn't prove it. A lot any of these techniques, there's no one thing that 100% proves that something is, is fraudulent, but you know, you can use a whole variety of different techniques and if they all point towards something being dodgy, well
1: That's maybe there's something funny going on. That's exactly the sort of thing that an AI would both be able to spot in fake things, but also to be aware of when it was faking data for exactly. you. you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's already
0: the case that you can fake a very convincing looking scientific paper mm. using using AI. Uh, there was one published recently that was deliberately, you know, done in order to show this. It's it's really obvious that you could that you could do that anyone who's used something like ChatGPT can realise that you could get it to produce a discussion section, an introduction section, and all that for you without without any problems at all. So add in a little bit of fake numbers to that, and uh, we're going to have a serious problem, I suspect. Um, and it'll be interesting. There'll be a, an AI battle as to you know AI is used to produce fake scientific papers and AI's AI used to detect fake scientific papers. And I guess there'll be some kind of arms race where yeah, like spam versus one... spam filters. Like it, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But but ultimately, yeah. I think if 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 fraudsters are you know going to gonna be uh, caught uh, we're all going to have to commit to being a lot more open and transparent with the way we do our analyses so I think that whole open science thing is just going to have to be so much more common people just being open with their data because um, it clearly deters you like it doesn't it doesn't yeah. mean that you necessarily will not commit fraud but um, it must be a deterrent if if you know that people might look at your data
1: uh, yeah it's obviously a higher bar for fraud if you're actually having to put the whole data yeah. set out there yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and I also think uh, because we can't ultimately and it's going to become increasingly difficult with AI and so on to rely on any individual paper I also think we're going to have to get much better at doing replications uh, it goes right back to the whole replication crisis idea like mm. independent groups have to be somehow rewarded for going out there and running exactly the same experiment as someone claims to have done uh, and checking if the results if they get similar results and that way we will uh, often find that some papers just never happened in the first place or you know uh, were were fraudulent in some in some way Um, but that's the kind of overall long-term thing because if we can't rely on any individual paper even if it looks even if the data don't look you know problematic we're only going to discover the actual truth of it if someone else comes along and tries to replicate it uh, uh, i would say
1: yeah, so this is basically our answer to everything: is always more open science, more registration, more uh, b- bigger, more replication of uh, older studies, that sort of stuff. Changing incentive structure for science. The, the, the same, the same. In fact, most of the stuff we say that is important for just avoiding the p hacking and data dredging and publication bias problems that we've talked about before mm-hmm. completely applies to fraud that's just a, a yeah. lot a lot of a lot of this better behavior in science solves or at least ameliorates the fraud problem as well as other things that it would help with
0: yeah i, th- I think i think i think that's the case as well like uh making the whole thing much more much more uh, like documenting the whole process like posting your data online posting your materials online uh, making a website that shows all your results and all the data just plugs straight into it and everything's open to the world and nothing um, that you see is is uh, is hidden away from the, what the world sees in in your data. Like, there's loads of points in that New Yorker article, several points where Dan Ariely forgets he said oh i don't know who did that experiment uh i can't remember what you know who wh- who was working with me at that point i don't know what questions i asked there whatever it is francesca gino claims that a research assistant was probably the person who committed the fraud but she can't remember who they are and she's trying to work out who worked with her at that point if if everyone collected better records we wouldn't have to ask these questions okay. we've also talked about punishing people like it needs to be a proper punishment. I, I actually think when someone's like used loads of taxpayers' money and wasted it, um, and then f- fraudulently made up results, I don't see a problem with jailing them uh, no. for that. In the way that you would jail someone like a politician who embezzled money or or wasted it on some, you know, project that that they knew was never going to work or that was fraudulent in some way. Do, yep. do you think?
1: No, no see, I mean, no. it seems like the same fraud, the same. Crime, right? You know that seems the same problem. You're taking taxpayer money and throwing it away on stuff that you know to be false. Uh, the, yeah, they... you might
0: as well have just stolen it.
1: Yeah, yeah, um... absolutely. You could we could see also that the universities should uh, are responsible for this as well. You know they mm. they have they need to be investigating their scientists, and if they aren't, if they're not doing so, and if I mean this is what we've mentioned a few times is the investigators of these things email us, email that you know. Whichever university, and they say we've found all this evidence of of um irregularities in the data. What are you going to do about it? And then just you don't hear back from them for literally years. I've I've seen you if you go to Nick Brown's blog, he will just like I've been emailing this guy for five years about this same problem, and no one's done anything about it. And yep. that that there's a point that stops being the, the university being. Um, they're too busy to deal with stuff and starts being culpable uh, You know, yeah, they, yeah.
0: or journals too Journals yeah, are univers- yeah. there's different levels, I think a big part of the problem is that the responsibility is diffused across the scientists the university the journal, the funder, like who is actually mm. you know um, who is actually responsible for investigating this stuff um, uh, the answer should be all of them it. I
1: guess but maybe there yeah. should be a formal yeah. you know there should be a formal yeah. thing where it's one of them
0: uh, and then there's a, a final thing which I'll just mention which is this, you, you, we talked about it before. You mentioned the incentive structure of science mm. is really bad, the hyper competition, and so on. Maybe if we didn't have that, there would be less reason for people to make stuff up and also a bit more space to investigate research and really dig into it and do proper peer review uh, actually you know try and rerun the analyses everyone shares their code and their data and the peer reviewers run the whole thing again and just make sure everything makes sense and looks good at the moment everyone's in such a rush they've got so much to do they've got so many papers to work on there's so much competition that uh, uh, that stuff falls by the wayside so changing the scientific culture in that sense would also help but you know, that's easier yeah. said than done. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, it's a fascinating thing. I think it's a hell of a lot more common than people want to believe. Uh, Mm. scientific fraud. I think a lot of scientists don't want to talk about it because it's such a, they feel like it's such a distance from their normal experience with science that they just think it's just this alien thing that we shouldn't talk about. But I think we should talk about it much more. It's much more common than you think and uh, there are things that we could be doing about it.
1: Amen to that. Um, Well, if you've enjoyed that, if you've enjoyed Stuart explaining what scientific fraud is and why he enjoys doing it so much, um, (laughs) then uh, please do like and subscribe. As ever, you can become a paid subscriber we recently did our first ever paid uh, episode and we yeah. were really gratified to see how many people very sort kind. of signed up to to, to listen to it it was it was amazing to learn that actually when you uh, offer people things for money they're more likely to give you money that was a money uh, <laughs> tom can be exchanged for goods and services so i gather so the great philosopher homer simpson once said um <laughs> yes all right uh, Stuart, that was really interesting and thank you very much to everyone for listening and uh, we will see you next week
0: see you next time cheers cheers